The following podcast is a glimpse into the life of Ecclesia Houston. We pray it is a blessing as you seek to follow Jesus, the liberating King, and live in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So if you have been around Ecclesia for a while, I just want to warn you that I'm going to tell you right at the beginning here several stories that you have already heard before. And this is just a warning. So if you're like me and you grew up in the 80s and 90s, you'll remember that every now and then a television show wouldn't show a rerun, but they would just have somebody like talking about things that happened in other shows and they would show you clips from past shows. So the first few minutes is going to be kind of a clip show from previous sermons. Story number one, in 1984, my family was living on the Gulf Coast in Mississippi. My mom worked for a shipping company and my father was a high school um, history teacher and band director. And there was a slew of layoffs where my mom worked. And we didn't have very much money at all. My dad was in school getting his master's at the time. And it didn't all hit at once, but slowly over time, as it would for almost everybody, there was just less and less and less money. And now it was getting close to the start of school and my brother Richard and I needed all of those things that your kids need when school starts, shoes and clothes and school supplies. And I think my parents did the best they could in not bringing their stress and anxiety about all of that to me and my brother, but we could tell that things had changed. And one day, my mom goes to the mailbox. And in the mailbox is an envelope, but it wasn't like regular mail. There was no postmark. There was no return address. It just said on it, the Palmer family. And she opened up the envelope. And inside of it, there was $400. We didn't know where it came from, who left it, That was 1984, so that's like $1,200 in today's money. And that got us through until the next thing. Story number two. 20 years ago, nearly, I worked for another congregation here in town. And one of our lay leaders um, invited me to have lunch with him at his office. He was a personal financial advisor. We'd never had lunch before. And he said, come down. I want to just have lunch with you and talk over a few things. So I went down to his office in downtown Houston. He's at the very top of what was then the Merrill Lynch building. He was a vice president at Merrill Lynch. They have their own private like restaurant at the top of that building. And we have lunch and we're talking. And he takes me back to his office later. And he says, well, there's some things that I wanted to talk to you about. And he proceeded to tell me how he had recently been diagnosed with cancer. And his wife knew and his children and his grandchildren, but he hadn't told very many people other than that about it. And then, shockingly, he asked me, and I was like 29 years old at the time, what I thought he should do. But as he was telling me this, he let me know. He said, you know, Sean, I've had a very good life. And he had. He's very successful in business. He had had a great marriage and great kids, great grandkids. And he explained to me that if he only had a year left to live, he didn't want to spend it being sick. 
Like he could travel with his wife and kids and grandkids. They could actually do things. He actually said, like, if I'm going to just be around for another year, like, I don't want to spend that year just leaned over a toilet. I don't want to be nauseous the whole time. And so I told him, I said, well, you have had a good life. And I don't know what to tell you. And then he asked me this. He says, if I were your father, what would you want me to do? And I said, well, you've had a good life. And partly what that means is you can afford any treatment in the world. And you've got a lot of good years left if you make it. That's what I would do. And that's what he did. And all these years later, he's still with us. Story number three, when our family lived in California, I was a senior pastor for a church there. I met a guy named David. And David ran a ministry for women and men on the street who were unhoused. And every Monday night, he would have a different church or a different group come to where they were and feed everyone, several hundred people, and then kind of have a local pastor give a word of encouragement to everyone. And we became friends. And as we became friends, I got to hear some of his story. And his story was like this, that there was another guy at a church in town who had discovered David when David was a drug and alcohol addict. And he started taking him to meetings and he got him clean. He eventually took David and took him to rehab. David went into rehab when he came out of rehab. He placed him with another family in their church where he had some inpatient and outpatient treatment back and forth for a long time until he was totally clean. And then he began working in this ministry and it continued to grow and grow and grow. And in a place like Silicon Valley where we were living at the time, it does not take a whole lot to be homeless. The truth is that if you earn less than $100,000 in Silicon Valley, you are this close to being homeless. Story number four. When I was in college, I spent the freshman, the year after my freshman year, as a summer intern for the church in Atlanta where I grew up. And part of what that meant was at the beginning of the summer, there was a retreat for all of the junior high kids. And so our summer started with this junior high retreat. And there were a lot of interns, a big youth group, and we had lots of things going on. And we were at this retreat at the very beginning of the summer with all of the junior high students. And Saturday night at this retreat, the man who had been my youth pastor came to me and says, we've got to do the thing in the morning. We're going to have communion. And I grew up in a tradition where most churches had what we called a communion meditation, which is that someone said like a little devotional piece right before everyone took communion. And he asked me, would you mind leading the communion thoughts in the morning? And I loved him. Like he was one of my heroes. There's probably not very much that he could ask me to do that I would say no to. And so I said, sure. So the next morning comes, we're in our worship gathering. I get up, 
I do my piece. 20 plus years later, I can still tell you exactly what I talked about that Sunday morning. And it was over and everyone was taking communion. I went to the back of the room and I sat down next to a woman who had been one of the key youth volunteers for me, uh, taught my Bible class every Sunday morning for the five years that I went to that church in junior high and high school. And I sat down on the floor next to her because back in the 90s, that's what youth ministries did. You just sat on the floor. And she leaned over to me and whispered, you ought to be a preacher. The reality of my life and the reality of your life is that I have a ton of stories like that. And you have a ton of stories that are like that. And many of the people that you know have stories like that. And when we tell those stories, oftentimes we tell them the same way that I just told them to you, but maybe even more frequently, do you know it is what we say? We say things like, God provided for me. God healed me. God rescued me. God spoke to me. And here's why that's important for you to know. Because for the last three weeks, we have been talking about this often confusing topic of work and vocation. And what I want you to know is that God works through people. That whatever your story is, whether God spoke to you or healed you, whether God provided for you, God rescued you, however the shape of that story takes place, God works through people. God works through means. And it's not just random generosity that put money in my parents' mailbox. Someone, somewhere, worked for that money and then they blessed us with it. When we are sick, we go to doctors. When we have trauma, we go to therapists. When we need discernment, we talk to women and men who have known God longer or differently or more deeply than we have, and we listen to what they have to say. The modern world has formed this imagination about God, that God either works far away somewhere and is primarily concerned about the whole cosmos all of the time, or that God is just confined like to the inside of me, that God is doing some little discreet work in my heart. And maybe when we get some free time, we'll volunteer at church, or when someone needs some money or we're collecting money for something in our family of faith, like we'll swipe a credit card. But few of us think very deeply or very often that God's most mighty work 
might be in the very everyday and mundane task that fill up your to-do list Monday through Friday. That God actually is working in the meeting that you'd rather not be in. And there is no meeting in the world that I would rather not be in. That God is at work when you are with that client, with that patient, when you are pouring over that spreadsheet, when you are with a student, when you are in study. And here's what's important to know about the intersection of your faith and your work and your vocation is that God works through people and that God works through your work. That God works through your work. God actually works through your work. If you bring God to work, which I think is a place where we want to be careful, because that does not mean false piety or Bible banging. It doesn't mean sharing your theological take on the day's news. It doesn't mean wrapping whatever your political party has to say that day in the cross and telling everybody about it, either in person or on Facebook. It doesn't mean condemning people because you don't like the way that they live. But it does mean doing your work for the glory of God. And what would it feel like for you? What would it feel like for you if you had the slightest inkling that when that patient, that client, that student, that coworker, that direct report, that boss, that when they left your presence, that there was the smallest glimmer that they had had an encounter with the divine? What might it feel like if you could rest at night trusting in the fact that God may be using you, that you are the means for which God will one day have someone tell a story of how God provided, how God healed, how God rescued, how God spoke. And the reality is, I don't know what you should do with your work and with your vocation. And it might take you a long time to figure out. You may have been working for 30 years and still don't know if you figured it out. And there are probably a hundred different factors to consider, but wouldn't you feel better? Wouldn't you wake more easily in the morning? Wouldn't, wouldn't you walk more proudly. If you believe that God was working through your work, that when you clock in, that God is doing something and you're not just there for you, 
or to provide for your partner and your kids or because this is the thing that you went to school to study for. That God is actually interested in working through your work. And if you're trafficking people or cheating people, if your work leads to abuse or oppression, God's not interested in working through that kind of work. But if your work isn't antithetical to what God is up to in the universe, God wants to use your work. The Apostle Peter has this profound framework about this, about how we spend our days. And this is what he says in 1 Peter 4. He says, the end of all things is near. Therefore, be serious and discipline yourselves for the sake of your prayers. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, for love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Like good stewards of the manifold grace of God, serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Whoever speaks must do so as one speaking the very words of God. Whoever serves must do so with the strength that God supplies so that God may be glorified in all things through Jesus Christ. To him belong the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter, Peter gives us four commands. The first one is to be serious and disciplined in prayer for the sake of your prayers. To be serious and not just talk about serious things, but be serious about your prayer and disciplined about it. And he says, maintain constant love for one another. It's like a lot of the stuff that goes on, maybe a lot of the stuff that goes on in your workplace wouldn't be stuff going on in your workplace if you were serious about loving one another. And I work at a church with all Christian staff, and that is actually more difficult than you think it might be. And he says, be hospitable without complaining. But each of those sounds kind of like the standard Christian stuff that you would expect to hear from the scriptures. But then there's the fourth. Serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. Serve one another with whatever gift each of you has received. And let me tell you, you can only do that. You can only follow this command if you believe that God is working through your work. Because here's the temptation. Like if you don't understand that what you offer in your work every day is a gift from God, you will believe that they are talents. And if they are your talents, they are to be used for your reward. But no one thinks that they should be rewarded for offering a gift. That what you do, the thing that you bring, what you show up with when you walk into a room is a gift given to you by God. Like there are things that I am extraordinarily good at. And there are things that are super simple that I'm extraordinarily poor at. This is how I know that the good things aren't 
talents. Because if it were me, like if it were only talents, I could work hard enough to figure it out. And there are some things that I will just never be able to figure out. When you show up in your workplace, there is a profound difference between thinking that you are talented and believing that you offer a gift. And I know that over the past several weeks, many of us have been asking questions about whether or not I should be doing this or maybe I should do this. Is this where I'm supposed to be? Is this where God wants me to be? Like, how am I supposed to handle all of that? Well, I think there are two guiding principles to help us work through that, at least two. These are just a couple that I came up with. I'm sure there are more. But I think it's helpful if you start to frame your weekday with these two principles. And the first principle is that your vocation comes first. Our tendency when it comes to our work is to consider earning power and joy, whether we feel good at it. But that's not actually the way that vocation works. So I'm gonna tell you a story And if you tell Chris that I ever told you this story, I will deny it. Eight years ago, I get a phone call on a Tuesday night. We were living in Temple, Texas at the time. And it's Pastor Chris. And he calls me and says, hey, we've got this opportunity. We're going to go multi-site. We want to have in-person preaching. Um, I want you to come down here and serve as teaching pastor. Well, it took two years for me to say yes to that offer. And there was a reason. I didn't want to. Like I had a life that I enjoyed in Temple. We had lived in Houston before and I was tired of being hot already. Like it's a big city and I hate traffic. Like I was a senior pastor of church doing my own thing. And so there were some slowdowns on this end with sales of property and things happening. And then there was a part on my end where I just wasn't really sure. And all of my friends and all of my family said, oh, you really ought to do it. You really ought to do it. You really ought to do it. And I was like, no, I don't want to do it. And so I'm having a conversation with my friend, John Allen Turner. (coughs) And he asked me, he says, well, what's keeping you from doing it? I said, well, I just don't think that I would enjoy it. And he says, what's that got to do with it? Two or three weeks later, Chris and I are talking on the phone. And he says, you know, I just really think your gifts are bigger than Temple, Texas. Hebrews 12 talks about it this way. Hebrews writer says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin that clings so closely and let us run with perseverance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith, who for the sake of the joy that was set before him endured the cross, disregarding its shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of the throne of God. 
Consider him who endured such hostility against himself from sinners so that you may not grow weary in your souls or lose heart. Jesus had a vocation, something that he was placed on the earth to do. And so do you. And that might show up in an eight to five Monday through Friday context, but it might not. But the biblical witness is that our work is to shape our lives around our vocation. This thing that you are made to do. And if Jesus is an example, that thing won't always be easy. It'll often be frustrating. You will be surrounded, if you are like Jesus, with people who don't understand at all what you're doing. And that's why first century Christians speak so much about perseverance. 21st century people have lost almost all capacity to persevere. And it is in nearly every book in the New Testament. And vocations change. Like the thing that you are to do with your life won't always be the same. So some of you know my wife, Rochelle, she teaches sixth grade science, but she did not go to school to teach school. Before we had kids, she was an adolescent therapist and a school counselor. But when we had kids, she wanted to be home with our kids. And so for several years, she did that, picking up work wherever she could, working for adoption agencies, doing all, she was working at home before it was cool. But when our girls went back to school and both were in school, she decided she always liked school context, that she would teach school because she wanted to be home when the girls were home. I just think about the last 20 years and how much more money she could have made doing something else. But that was the right decision. And that's not the right decision for everybody, but it was the right way to make a decision. Because life changes and the thing that you are supposed to do changes. It won't always be the same. What is the work that God is calling you to, inviting you into? And then use those gifts. And second, be good at your job. One of the worst testimonies for Christians in the world are Christians who are bad at their job. And maybe I'm a little bit jaded, 
But have any of you ever like walked into a business and they've got some sort of ornamentation letting you know that they are a Christian business? When I see that, I immediately get suspicious. Because that is not something you need to tell people. That is something you need to show people. Because when I get on an airplane, I don't care if the pilot is a Christian. I want them to be a good pilot. And when I go to the dentist office, I don't need to hear about your church and faith commitments. I need this root canal to not hurt too badly. And here's how we're wired. When you show up where God has called you and you have dedicated yourself to being spectacular at that calling, you not only gain respect as a professional and in whatever aspect that you work, but people begin to listen to you about the other aspects of life. Like that's how you gain credibility, especially in our world. We're showing up and telling everybody that you believe in Jesus does not get you anywhere. As a matter of fact, it might earn you some demerits in some arenas. But if you've dedicated yourself to being great at what God has called you to do, you will find that people begin to give you an audience about other things. Paul writes about it this way in Colossians. He says, whatever task you must do, work as if your soul depends on it. As for the Lord and not for humans, since you know that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward, you serve the Lord Jesus. And Paul says this is so simple. You work as if souls depend on it. Because you know what? Souls depend on it. Because your work can be the source for someone to one day say, God provided, God healed, God rescued, God spoke to me. Why? Because of your work. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you would like more information, please visit our website at www.ectasiahouston.org.